Hello and welcome again to COM 2110, Sports Media and Communication. And in this lecture, we'll talk about ethics, and then we will talk about morality and sort of the difference between the two, and then how morality and just sort of entertainment viewing in general are linked together. Uh, my voice will sound different in a couple of these slides because this was a previously recorded lecture that I've just simply updated uh, for this semester. So what we'll be doing first, again, is going through sort of what ethics are compared to what morals are, um, because ethics has an entire chapter in the book and the different ways that sports um, entities engage in ethics and how sports fans respond to that. Um, and then we'll shift into what morals are, morality is compared to that. And uh, that will guide the conversation leading into disposition theory and how morals play into that and enjoyment of entertainment media and subsequently sports media as well. And then we will get to how fans actually respond to immoral acts by athletes. So the whole chapter on ethics can be summed up in two topics. Things keeping us from making ethical decisions and things that we consider to help us make ethical decisions. So we have things like using instrumental versus value rationality, decision based on values or based on what we're going to get out of it. Um, think of like if you have lost a wallet before, um, do you return it to the person with the money in there or do you decide to keep the money and then return it to them, right? Uh, employing euphemism for unethical behavior. Uh, you'll do a daily case about gamesmanship. You know, what is gamesmanship? Is it actually cheating or are you just sort of gaming the system? Okay. And make sure as part of that, you know what strategic ambiguity is. Okay. Um, there's also rationalizing unethical behavior. Uh, we do that for a bunch of things. Um, you'll see rationalization again, actually, um, moving forward. You know, when a player we root for does something bad, we have to use rationalization to continue to root for them. Um, and then finally, for these sort of obstacles to ethical decision making, we have normalizing deviance. Um, there's a quote from the book that says people don't wake up and say, I think I'll become a criminal today. Instead, it's often a slippery slope and we lose our footing one step at a time. If you've ever seen the show Breaking Bad, that's kind of a perfect example of normalizing deviance. You know, he starts off. The main character, Walter White, starts off as simply wanting to sell drugs to try to make enough money that he can afford his cancer treatment, and it sort of progresses from there. He does worse and worse things until he has broken bad, hence the name of the show. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, we have tools that we can use for ethical decision making. Okay, The first of those is categorical imperative. There are absolute rights and wrongs says this idea, this sort of theory. And so we have to choose the morally right path. So something like lying. Lying is generally wrong. So no matter what, we shouldn't lie. So white lies are immoral if you are going by the categorical, categorical imperative perspective. Okay. Another tool is called utilitarianism. And the idea here is that the moral choice is the one that benefits the most people. Okay, so think of something like um, 
we have, say, the trolley problem, uh, sort of version of that is having 100 strangers on a trolley and having one loved one on a different trolley. And you have to decide which of those two trolleys is going to go off the cliff and which one you're going to save. Do you save the one that has the person you love or do you save the one that has 100 people that you don't know? Utilitarianism would say you'd have to choose the one that has 100 people on it because that's the choice that benefits the most people. Another one is called the veil of ignorance. Uh, Basically, you can't consider context or anything in a choice. You're going completely in a vacuum when you are deciding on what to do. Think of that title, Veil of Ignorance. Okay, We've had a lot of conversations. Um, a lot of people have had different conversations about hiring practices when it comes to, say, the NFL. They have the Rooney Rule where they must consider a black candidate in the hiring process for a head coach. The veil of ignorance would suggest that it doesn't matter at all the race of the person. You're just going by sort of the fact sheet and that's it. That doesn't take in any context at all, considering sort of historical context when it comes to the systematic racism that has been in the NFL when it comes to coaches and, say, quarterbacks, that sort of thing. So veil of ignorance would suggest that none of that matters in the hiring process. Another one is situational ethics, where basically you must consider the context and everything in a choice. So the example that we're just talking about, you would overly consider potentially some black candidates because of the previous instances of racism and structural racism in the NFL. Uh, another one is Aristotle's golden mean. So basically you make a choice that's a compromise of sort of the two extreme choices. So think of if a friend admitted to murder. Instead of immediately telling the police or helping them leave the country, right, those are sort of the two extremes of immediately telling on them versus completely helping them leave the country and get away with it, maybe you tell the police after you give them a head start on fleeing the country, right? Sort of in between. And so those are tools for ethical decision-making that the book talks about. Now, the other main section of that chapter, besides sort of why ethical decision-making can be difficult and some ways to try to um, get around that, um, the rest of it is these situations that happen in sports where maybe it's ethical, maybe it's not, maybe it's not ethical, whatever it is. Um, and what I want you to do, so if we were in class, we would actually go through each of these individually um, and we'd see what everyone said. But instead, we will do one of them, okay? And then I'm going to show you the results from previous classes to sort of give an example of how it's not quite cut and dry, right? So here is the scenario that I want you to um, consider. And here's a QR code that you can use to post your answer, what you would choose in this situation. And then in future classes, you can be added to the results that you will see on the next slide. All right, so here's the situation. So you write for the sports section of a newspaper that is published in a state where betting is illegal. In your city, there's a voracious appetite for sports news. A rival publication is barely surviving, but is doing so because of its sports section. 
you have been reluctant to post the gambling spreads in your publication because it is against the law to bet on sports. You know, of course, that people bet illegally, but your editors have decided not to encourage the illegal activity. Meanwhile, your rival not only posts the spread, but also the over and under, which is a gambling figure meaningful only to more than casual bettors. The rival publication has a column written by a pundit who offers advice on how to bet and beat the spread. After each day, the rival not only publishes the scores of the games, but how the teams did against the spread and the over-under. Your paper is losing some readership because of its stance on not posting information about betting. Would your paper be unethical if it began simply posting the spreads? Also, is the rival unethical for providing the extensive betting information? So what do you think? So here's what your classmates in the past have said about this ethical dilemma. So would your paper be unethical if it simply posted the spreads? Well, about 50-50. A couple more said yes, it would be unethical, and that's about it. 52% to 47%, right? So almost exactly halfway. Right? And almost the exact same thing happened for, would the rival be unethical for providing the extensive betting information? Um, exactly 50-50 in this case. Now, how would the situation change if it was legal to bet in the state? Would that change your opinion of if it's ethical or unethical? I'll bet some of you said yes, that would change your opinion. So... Does that mean something that's ethical depends entirely on the legality of it? Is something always ethical if it's legal? Is something always unethical if it's illegal? So if you go over state lines into a state that's that doesn't allow betting, is are you now being unethical? It's kind of an interesting dilemma, right? And so this entire chapter has different scenarios where Maybe something's ethical, maybe it's not, but there are different perspectives and tools you can use to sort of guide yourself when it comes to making those decisions. So, what exactly is the difference between ethics and morals? Well, let's actually watch a video that gives a decent uh, example of the difference between the two. And because it's close to Halloween, um, the feeling of it goes along with that. Panic. Your friend sprints towards your house in a frenzy. He pounds on your door like a gavel. Alarmed, you pause watching Mr. Cognito to investigate the disruption, knowing it's not Girl Scouts selling cookies. As you open the door, your friend tells you in short breaths that a madman has come to kill him. He asks if you can allow him shelter inside your house. You allow him entry and slam the door shut. For defense, you grab some old baseball bats from the garage and you hide near the front door in preparation. All of a sudden, a thunderous boom invades your eardrums. Impatiently, the bearer of the noise kicks down the door like an ape on steroids. Seeing his gun pointed at your delicate figure, you drop both the bat and your urine. In a booming yet scattered voice, he demands to know the whereabouts of your friend. Knowing that he's in your house, you lie and tell him he's at his own house. The madman leaves and makes his way towards your friend's house. You hear three gunshots and a scream that is unmistakably your friend's. Your friend 
is dead. Now what happened here? Not only did you lie to the murderer, your friend lied to you. Your friend only lied to you because he assumed you would tell the murderer when threatened. Did you make the right choice? Ethics would say no, but morality might say yes. What exactly is the difference between the two? People claim this and that to be immoral, but do they really know what they're talking about? If in a community of 10 people, 9 believe stealing is bad and 1 believes it's no biggie, is stealing moral, immoral, ethical or unethical? For the community as a whole, it's been democratically decided that it is unethical. It goes against the philosophies of the group as a whole. On the individual level, stealing is acceptable to one fraction and not acceptable to another. In other words, it's moral to one group and immoral to another. To put that into context, someone might say recreational cannabis is immoral, but it's only immoral to them. Whether it's ethical or not depends on the jurisdiction. In Canada or the Netherlands, it would be ethical, while in Singapore, it could warrant up to 10 years in prison, being beaten with a cane, and up to $20,000 in fines. That would make it unethical. A community could be a country, a culture, a professional body, or a religious group. Shared values among these groups constitutes ethics. Doctors have an ethical responsibility to ensure the best interests of their patients, or to do no harm. Cultures and countries have different values when it comes to things like gender roles, marriage, drugs, crime, and punishment, like Sharia law or the US Constitution. Religious groups have ethical beliefs about marriage, drugs, technology, and what's necessary to fulfill that religion's doctrine. Back to the problem at the beginning of the video. You lying to the murderer and your friend lying to you would be unethical as we, as a society, have established lying to be wrong. However, on the moral front, it depends on the person. Some may believe they have a higher responsibility over telling the truth, making lying moral to them. For those who differ, it would be immoral. Say a friend tells you in confidence that they're having relationship issues. Obviously, it's your ethical duty to keep it a secret. What if instead, the friend told you, again in confidence, that they were contemplating committing suicide. What would you do then? Ethically, you wouldn't want to break their trust. Morally, different people have different ideas. Would you break their trust because you feel morally obligated to save them? That's another conflict between ethics and morals. Basically, morals are subjective and based on the individual, while ethics are more objective and based on values established by a community. From now on, I hope you're no longer confused about these two separate but connected concepts. And until next time, thanks for watching. Alright, so for going off of that video then, morals refer mainly to guiding principles, and ethics refer to specific rules or actions or behaviors, right? So morality is more subjective and more individualistic. A person's idea of morals tends to be shaped by their surrounding environment, for instance, and sometimes their belief system. Think of anyone that's a Christian or Catholic um, has grown up knowing the golden rule, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, right? And that's something that leads to morality or can develop into some sort of moral code.
So moral values can shape a person's ideas about what is right and what is wrong. Ethics, on the other hand, are more objective and more or less established by the community. An ethical code is a set of rules that defines allowable actions or a correctable behavior. Um, often the intention is to keep people out of trouble. Um, an example of this is the journalistic code of ethics. So um, you can click on this. I'll also post the link on Canvas, but uh, there's a whole list of principles. There's four principles and then a whole list of things underneath those principles that um, journalists are supposed to abide by, right? And so these are two things from the seek truth and report it principle, right? Identify sources clearly. The public is entitled, entitled to as much information as possible to judge the reliability and motivations of source. There's also one that says consider sources motives before promising anonymity. Reserve anonymity for sources who may face danger, retribution, or other harm, or who have information that cannot be obtained elsewhere. Explain why uh, anonymity was granted. And this is usually for, like, if someone's being a whistleblower um, for the company that they work for, and they're, you know, reporting really bad stuff that the company's doing. They don't want to then get fired by the people in charge of the company um, for essentially ratting on them. That's the reason for having that one. However, what if someone comes up to you and you're a journalist and says they know who murdered so-and-so and they personally helped bury the body? So based on the second ethical code, you could argue that identifying that source would cause that source danger and retribution, right? They would probably go to jail by being identified as, um, you know, abetting a murder. But morally, you'd probably identify that source, right? Or think of like a therapist or um, lawyer-client privilege, right? You're not supposed to share information, but what if a client admits directly to you if you're a lawyer that they're guilty? What do you do in that situation? Do you continue to try to defend them even though they've literally told you that they're guilty? Um, that'll based on what your sense of justice is, right? Morality. So that's the difference. Morality is more based on personal characteristics or background of an individual. And that leads to something that at least I find very interesting. And one of the main ways that people actually enjoy media entertainment is through morality. So these two researchers, Dolph Zillman and Jennings Bryant, they're sort of the OGs of media effects and entertainment research. Um, they were doing it for years and years and years before I was born, for sure. Um, they were really interested in how and why people enjoy media content. Because it's easy to think to yourself that, you know, you are enjoying something. You are either enjoying or not enjoying this lecture right now, probably, right? But figuring out why is a little bit of a different thing, okay? So they've been researching this since like 1972 and have found a bunch of reasons, right? Um, that can include escapism. Um, we watch stuff because it, it excites us. Um, it relieves stress. Um, however, those are all sort of, I would call them more external things. Um, and they say that none seem to control enjoyment as strongly and as universally as do affective dispositions toward interacting parties, especially parties confronted with problems, conflict, and aversive conditions. 
So what does that quote actually mean? Basically means that enjoyment comes from how we feel about the characters we're watching. We're invested in their problems, their conflicts, how they're going to come out on the other side of that journey, right? All of those things are why we watch. And we all like different characters um, to different degrees, right? We, there's specific ones that we might identify with and a friend might identify with other ones. And a lot of that is based on how much we, um, it, how much we identify with the characters is based on uh, our own demographic perspective or their humor and especially moral perspective. So just like we have different friends and people uh, that we like in the real world, we like different characters in media similarly based on who we are. Morality, like I said. Um, and that leads to one of the main ways that we enjoy entertainment media. We get enjoyment from seeing characters that we like succeed and seeing characters that we don't like fail. So I'll say that one more time, right? We get enjoyment from seeing characters that we like succeed and seeing characters that we don't like fail. You know, we enjoy when Luke Skywalker defeats Darth Vader, right? Because we like Luke Skywalker, we want to see him succeed, and we don't like Darth Vader and we want to see him fail. Um, and going along with this is the idea of justice. So enjoyment can also depend on if we think the justice that each character receives is close to our own version of what we think justice actually is. So think of any crime drama that you've watched. It could be TV or film. If the person that committed the crime, assuming that you're rooting against them, um, the person that committed the crime, if they're caught and punished, what was their punishment? You know, was a murderer killed or sent to jail? Would you have preferred one or the other? And um, our idea of justice can actually shift in a given context. Um, that's what this quote here means. The latitude of acceptance is seen as dynamic, that we, our ideas of justice shift um, depending on what we're watching and in specific environments. So anyone watch Game of Thrones? In that setting, we might be more likely to think that an apt punishment is death for a variety of things we wouldn't normally think that would be an appropriate punishment for. So, what does this actually have to do with sports? Well, one of those OGs also co-authored something with another OG in the field where they extend this theory to be about sports spectatorship. So, what leads to enjoyment of sports spectatorship? Well. Uh, sports can also help with escapism, uh, mood management or regulation, uh, suspense, obviously. Uh, mood regulation, by the way, is just like if you are um, in a down mood, maybe you want to watch something funny to try to level out how you're feeling. Um, or it could work in the other way, too. Like if you're feeling kind of down, maybe you want to sort of let it all out and you listen to some really sad music and, you know, have a good cry. Um, but again... Sports is more than just that. We get an, uh, enjoyment for more than just these types of things. Enjoyment in a sporting event is also affected by our affective dispositions towards the teams or athletes that are competing. All right? How we feel about that. Um, and going off of that, something we'll discuss next week. Why are people are fans of the, um, why are people fans of a team or athlete that they're fans with? Um, Similarly to media characters, it's based on personal differences and demographics. And uh, for teams especially, location and family influence is a big one, right? I'll bet a lot of you 
uh, the reason that you are fans of a particular team is because you grew up rooting for that team because of your parents, that type of thing. But all of those affect our identification with a team, or it can also be a player as well. So if all of this is repeating the previous slide based on what we just talked about, look at these two groups. Team you rooted for and the team you root against, or player you root for, player you root against, right? To get the most enjoyment, what needs to happen to each of these groups in the sporting event that we're watching? Basically, the team you root for, you want them to win, and the team you root for loses, right? That's how you maximize enjoyment, just like you're rooting for a character to succeed, and you're rooting against a character you don't like to fail, right? And are there certain teams that you dislike more than other teams? Probably. Uh, rivals are usually teams that are more hated than other teams. So if you're a Patriots fan, you will root even harder for someone like the Bills to lose, right? Or if you're a Celtics fan, you root even harder for the Lakers to lose. So not only does seeing your favorite team win provide more enjoyment than seeing another team win, but enjoyment is also... Um, increased and probably reaches sort of maximum levels when your team beats a despised rival because your favorite team is succeeding and your most hated team is losing, right? So maximum enjoyment. Okay. So uh, that's a theory uh, based on moral and affective disposition towards fictional characters can also help explain why we get so much enjoyment from watching our favorite teams succeed, right? Based on morality. Now, getting enjoyment from uh, those teams that we root for um, when they win is not really, um, you know, it's pretty obvious, right? But how do we react when people we root for commit some sort of immoral act? Speaking of morality, well, there's also a study for that. So these researchers were interested in how people respond to athletes doing immoral things. You know, it could be using PEDs, um, performance-enhancing drugs, or cheating or something like that. Um, they also reference Tiger Woods having affairs, or uh, Kobe's jersey was still a top seller even during his sexual assault case. And so they wondered, based on these types of scenarios and things that happen, do these fans become less moral when it comes to evaluating their favorite players' immoral actions? Or is it something like, do fans have low expectations for these athletes to be morally sound? And after going through a whole bunch of the previous studies um, in their literature review, they hypothesized that what probably actually happens is that fans morally reason to lessen negative emotions. Okay? And we'll get into specifics of what morally reasoning means. Okay? Imagine... You have a good friend that does something that you think is immoral. Do you stop being their friend? Maybe. Sometimes, though, we let it go. Or we say things like, but they're still my friend. Or we try to rationalize it like they, they've always been nice to me. Or um, they're under a lot of stress that week. Or everyone else did it too. Or they had to copy off their classmates so they didn't fail right? Those are all strategies we use to try to morally reason our way or downplay or rationalize something that we find immoral that was done by someone that we like. 
Think of it as mental gymnastics that we do in order to keep seeing our friend in a positive light. So similarly, if an athlete that we root for does something that we think is immoral or bad, we might be inclined to also try to downplay or rationalize what they did, right? And just like how we'll be probably more likely to stick up for our our BFFs, our best friends, our closest friends compared to acquaintances, diehard fans probably morally reason more so than Fairweather fans or fans that are kind of like iffy about the team, right? So they conducted a study to test these ideas and they use a real player and a real case to do it. Can anyone guess which player uh, and immoral act they use that we've probably talked about extensively in this class, perhaps during crisis communication? The Ray Rice case, um, the player for the Ravens that way back it when um, decided to uh, physically assault his girlfriend in the elevator. Remember the elevator tape? Um, that's what this was about. So what they ended up doing in this study was having people in the Baltimore area answer this questionnaire about six weeks after the elevator tape came out. And they chose Baltimore because that's where the Ravens play. And you're going to find more fans of a team in the city where that team is. So first, they asked how much they identified with Ray Rice. Um, and this was from an agree to disagree thing. Okay, this is pretty straightforward, and you can see how this might be easily translatable to the team perspective, which you'll be exposed to next week. It's team identification. But they asked them, you know, how much do you disagree? Or I'm sorry, how much do you agree or disagree with these statements? Being a fan of Ray Rice is very important to me. I'm com a committed fan of Ray Rice. I consider myself to be a real fan um, of Ray Rice, right? All of those things are things that people will agree with if they have high identification with that player. So that was the first thing they did. Next, they asked them how they felt about the scandal emotionally, um, from very weak to very strong. So simply just negative emotions. A higher number means stronger anger or contempt or disgust, right? And so they asked them how strongly or weakly they felt, you know, how scornful they felt, how disdainful they felt, how mad. Um, how uh, disgusted they were, those types of things. Then after that, they asked them about their general agreement with some statements meant to tap into this idea of moral reasoning. So first one we have is decoupling, moral decoupling. Um, after that initial gut reaction from the, you know, the disgust and anger, that type of thing, the who comes more into play. In this case, the player they root for. So moral coupling is where we then try to separate what a person does in their personal life from what they do in their professional life. So off-field versus on-field. Um, and they asked them how much they agreed with these statements to measure that, you know, from strongly agree to strongly disagree. And this is a really common thing, right? Especially for players we root for. We're constantly saying that what they do off the field doesn't matter compared to, you know, what they do on the field. But you can see here how much they agree or disagree with specific statements would tap into that, right? His conduct does not change my assessment of his performance. Judgments of his performance should remain separate from judgments of morality. 
of reports of wrongdoing should not affect our view of Ray Rice's achievements, right? So trying to decouple him as a football player from him as a person off the field. Next thing they did was moral rationalization. Similarly, this is a strategy of trying to downplay or rationalize why someone did something. This is where the, oh, everyone's doing it, it's fine. Or, you know, they would have failed if they didn't cheat. Or it's not really hurting anyone, so why not, right? Those are all things we use to rationalize doing something or rationalize why someone we like did something. You know, Ray Rice's transgressions, not as bad as some of the other horrible things that people do, so it's not a big deal. Um, his behavior was all right if his fiance belittled him. He was just uh, reacting to something that she did. She's in the wrong, right? It must be his fiance's fault. Um, he shouldn't be at fault because the pressures of modern society are so high. You know, those types of things, trying to rationalize what he did. Finally, moral coupling. So this is basically the opposite of decoupling. Makes sense. One's coupling, one's decoupling. Okay. Um, in general, it means that something was so bad in someone's eyes that they can't separate what the person did from their professional, or in this case, football life. It also considers, um, um, you know, peoples whose morals are such that, you know, they always need to consider all of a person, not just certain aspects. And keep in mind, based on what we just covered, that moral decoupling and moral coupling are most likely opposites. And if one is present, the other one probably is not. Or in this case, people that agree with moral decoupling, for the example, right, that we need to keep his personal life separate from football, they would probably then disagree with the moral coupling, which is you need to consider both at the same time. So keep that in mind. And lastly, because this is a sports marketing study, they wanted to show essentially, did the way fans respond affect how much support they had for the athlete? And an easy way to do that is by asking people to respond to the statements. Overall, my attitudes towards Ray Rice are bad to good, unfavorable to favorable, negative to positive. Um, and then they also asked them about uh, things he's associated with. So overall, my attitude towards brands endorsed by Ray Rice is bad to good, favorable, favorable, positive, negative. Um, and the idea is that if people are indeed morally reasoning or morally coping to try to um, lessen the offense in their mind, are those um, that are doing more so also going to show that they still support him more, right? So if they are morally decoupling or rationalizing, are they still going to support him uh, to a higher level? So what did they end up finding? Well, here's their full model. All right, don't worry if you're confused. We're going to go over each of these things step by step. Uh, first, each oval on here is a different variable that we just talked about, right? Um, and they're all the initials essentially. So CAD, contempt, anger, and disgust. ID, team, or I'm sorry, player, identification, ID. Uh, MD, moral decoupling, MR, rationalization, uh, MC, moral coupling. And then over there, you got the A's. You have A for athlete, attitudes towards athlete, attitudes towards the brand is the A, B, R, D, okay? So now that you know what each of those is, let's go step by step and actually understand what some of these numbers um, 
me. Let's start with that last part since it's it's kind of the most straightforward. Uh, the stars next to the numbers mean uh, that two things were associated, right? So attitudes towards Ray Rice, the one on the left, um, is related to attitudes towards the brands he promotes on the right, obviously, right? And the arrow means that attitudes towards Ray Rice leads to, or um, to make it more clear, causes attitudes towards the brands he promotes. Meaning that the more someone has positive attitudes towards Ray Rice, the more they probably have positive attitudes towards brands that he promotes, right? Again, that seems pretty obvious. Um, you're more inclined to like something uh, that someone else that you like also likes, right? So that one's pretty obvious. Now let's actually go to the, the meat of this whole thing. Next we have is team identification and the negative emotions, contempt, anger, and disgust. So we've got the stars and the arrow, right? Here, it's a negative number though. So as team identification increases, so as people's um, connection to or identification with Ray Rice goes up, negative emotions decrease, which means that the more they identified with Ray Rice, the less angry or disgusted they were on what he did. So diehard fans, and we're assuming they're Ravens fans, right? Because that's the team he plays for. We're assuming diehard Ravens fans weren't as angry or disgusted by what Ray Rice did. Again, pretty straightforward. All right. Now it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, and hopefully, I tried to clean this up as much as possible, but um, I apologize if it looks a little bit messy, but I think it looks pretty well. All right, start. Uh, start with the first two uh, ovals there, the MD and MR. So the angrier or more disgusted that people were, the less they were willing to separate the act from his football ability. And they were less likely to downplay or rationalize it. On the other hand, the angrier or more disgusted they were, the more um, they thought that you have to consider what he did when talking about him as a player, right? Um, him assaulting his fiance was too much of a bad thing for them to not think about that when he's on the field. This is, again, pretty obvious, right? The worse you think something is, the harder it's going to be for you to rationalize it. So just on the surface, that's kind of what that means. The, hard, um, the, the worse that you think something is, meaning you're more angry about it, you're more disgusted by it, the harder it's going to be for you to rationalize it. Now, how does fandom affect moral reasoning. It was the opposite of the emotions. So the more that a person identifies with Ray Rice, the more they could downplay or rationalize it um, or consider it separate from his football performance on the field. Um, and the more that someone identified with him, the less they coupled. So diehard fans were more likely to decouple or rationalize or downplay what Ray Rice did compared to Fairweather fans. That's the nuts and bolts. If you're a fan of the Ravens, you're going to be more likely to say that it wasn't that big of a deal or it shouldn't matter. He's a football player. And the more diehard you are, the more likely you are to say that than someone who's a Fairweather fan. Finally, here's how moral reasoning affected attitudes towards Ray Rice and his brands. First of all, the dotted line means no connection. Okay, So the amount of coupling that someone did did not affect their attitudes towards Ray Rice. Okay, so 
um, the degree that which someone thought, you know, you need to consider both together, that didn't affect how they thought about Ray Rice in the end. More interesting, though, the more that people separated his assault from football and the more that they downplayed or rationalized it, the more positive their attitudes towards Ray Rice, uh, which in turn increases his increases attitudes towards his brands that he promotes, right? So if someone thought, yes, what he did really isn't that big of a deal, or there's worse things that people did, um, they had higher support for him. So almost like they were digging their heels in to support him more. And you could think of how this would work with friends, right? If someone accuses, if someone accuses a close friend of something, you might feel the need to defend them a little bit more. It's kind of a similar thing. So um, the people who were at the high end of, they thought for sure it's not that big of a deal. And, um, you know, maybe his fiance had something to do with it. Like the ones that thought that furthest, they were the ones to also support him the most. Um, and same thing for decoupling. If someone was, you know, absolute, resolute, whatever they do off the field does not matter no matter what compared to what they do on the field, that increased support for or attitudes towards Ray Rice as well. So based on that, we can conclude a couple of things. First is that the more that a person is a fan of a player, the more likely they are to think that the bad stuff they did off the field doesn't matter, right? So it doesn't matter that he punched his girlfriend and knocked her out. I'm only rooting for him as a football player, okay? Also, sports fans are more likely to downplay or rationalize things that players do that they find immoral the more that they are a fan for that player, right? So the more diehard fans are going to say that him punching his girlfriend and knocking her out isn't that big of a deal, right? The more diehard fan is, fan is going to say that compared to someone who's a less of a fan. Now that we understand that, we can ask a few more things. Like, would that also happen for other things besides just immoral acts that we would have to or feel the need to um, morally reason, morally decouple, morally rationalize, you know, downplay things, right? How would identifying with a celebrity or athlete affect moral reasoning when they said something racist? All right, what about Kanye? Um, are there diehard Kanye fans right now that are currently downplaying his anti-Semitic comments? Or are there people that just morally think that you can separate the two? Or do people that voted for Trump think that, you know, the nasty stuff he says about women doesn't really matter as long as he's a good leader? And speaking of politics, would the same phenomenon happen if we replaced an immoral act or immoral things that people say or something like that with someone's political beliefs or statements? So would something like, uh, you know, would we have the same responses if um, we replaced punching someone out in an elevator with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem, right? Would that garner the same moral reasoning responses where the diehard fans, regardless of politics, might be more willing to downplay it or rationalize it? Well, perhaps we will find out sometime. So that's it for this lecture. Um, hopefully the difference in audio isn't too jarring for you. Um, next lecture, we'll be talking more about sports fandom and sports media. Uh, and I want you to read the fandom and sports communication chapter 
um, what we sort of went over was a nice little uh, preview of talking about sports fans. Um, So I'll see you next time. Thanks.